but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will ascend from heaven with the cry of command that the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Renaissance paintings in, in still lifes, they used to put a memento, a memento mori often in the, in the still life, like a skull somewhere in the corner, or sometimes, sometimes in, a, in, in a very strange perspective so that you could only see the skull if you were standing like right beside the painting instead of dead on. But the idea was to always remember, you know, that everything that exists is tainted or touched with the taint of mortality. And, you know, that's rough. But there, there's some useful things in it. It keeps you awake and it, it keeps you focused if you're careful. But it also does indicate to you, if you think about it, the necessity of having a meaning in your life. Good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here. And Miss Linda, that is the first time in the history of Westside that somebody reading the Bible got an applause. Amen. 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 You know, we've, we've always strived to be a people of the word. Um, and man, there's just something about when you hear the word read in worship. I mean, God wrote a book. And he has spoken, and, and to hear it read with such passion and authenticity, I think really meets what we're trying to go to here. And so um, we are in a series called Memento More, and, and if it's your first time here, I know it's a bit odd, and it seems a bit off. I've even had some conversations with people that's like, man, the first time you did that, that was rough, and then when you announced that you were going to do it again, I was not excited about that, because this, this is a series that, that deals with death. And, and the reason why we're doing that is just to review. The, the word memento mori comes from your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. It's the Latin translation of when God says um, that from the dust you were created into the dust you shall return. And so this phrase throughout church history is carried on through the centuries. And it means remember death or remember your death. And the reason why we're doing that is because we said this. 
I think oftentimes Christians miss out on Easter. Like, we know it's a big deal. Like, the Super Bowl's a big deal. Like, oh, every year, like, this is big. Like, I think we're supposed to do this. But the reality is, is you cannot celebrate the victory of Easter until you have meditated on the problem of death. There is a reason why in Christianity it hinges on one thing. Um, Christianity does not have a Mecca, a holy place. You can go to the Holy Lands, that's fine. But there is not a centralized location for Christianity. Because one thing matters. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the question. And once we answer that, then we can understand the magnitude of it. And what we have said is, the goal of this series is that by remembering our death, we would then renew our life. That Jesus meditated on his death. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The Bible would go so far as to say, if you are ignoring or denying the reality of death, that you are on the path of foolishness in that sense. And we said this last week, that the death of Jesus frees us from the fear of death. That, that really fear and, and phobias um, all lead to one thing, the fear of death. Like, I'm afraid of spiders. Why? Well, I, you know, and we said, like, there's nothing worse than walking through a spider web. I don't care what it is, okay? You will burn the clothes that you're wearing if you walk through a spider. Why? Why am I afraid? Because everything leads to the finality of death in that sense. And as a way of introduction, you know, I, I, I spoke and said that, that we rolled this out last year and it's sort of in the season of Lent, if you grew up Methodist or whatever like that, because it prepares us um, for Easter. And so um, last year, just to give you an insight into what I do, whether it be a book of the Bible or a topic, like whatever the Lord has sort of laid before us, what I do is I just become obsessed with that topic or that book of the Bible and just dive into it. And so for preparation, normally of a series, and especially um, last year, I, I sort of just dive in and, and read books. It's just the only thing. I, the butter slid off my biscuit a long time ago. And so I'm like, man, if somebody studied that and wrote a book, why would I not read that, right? And so um, this kind of is what the preparation looks like last year. Some of these are good. Some of these you should not buy at all, okay? Some of them, if you're having trouble sleeping, maybe you can read some of those. And that's sort of what the preparation looked like of leading up to this topic of, of death. And then the series of events um, unfolded this past year. And so preparing for the series this year has looked a lot different than preparing for a series last year. And this past year, I, I ran across a poem that probably articulates to the core of what I'm trying to communicate. And it comes from the American poet Robert Browning Hamilton. And Robert Browning Hamilton was born in 1867. He had much success as a poet. And by far his most famous poem 
reads like this. I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. And I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. You know, there's a difference in in head knowledge and then experience. There's a difference in ivory tower academia. And then there's a difference of walking the halls of the hospital and being in that ward. I think sometimes in the information age that we live in, we feel like we are so prepared. I mean, you have a device in your pocket where you can Google everything I'm saying and check it, and we have all of this information at our hands. But I would say this. I would say as a society, as a whole, we are the least prepared for the finality of death as humanity has ever been in history. And it's because we have this information, but lack this level of application. And there is a wisdom. Those verses that Adam read, we are promised two things. We are promised suffering in this broken, fallen world. That even all creation groans. Did you pick that up? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tornadoes? Why are there mosquitoes? <laughs> right? It's because of the brokenness of the world. We are promised there will be suffering. But oh my, the second thing that we are promised is that the hope and the glory that is to come will far outweigh any suffering that we have ever experienced. That's the good news that's promised. And so last week, we sort of asked the question, how do I face the fear of death, right? But you should have had some questions intentionally. I even got a few text messages like, I still have questions. And I was like, good, that's a good sermon then, right? Um, because... Though we can face the fear of death and the finality of it, we're alive now. And then when we live longer than two seconds, we realize the people that we love don't live forever. And I, and, and I told this story last year, but, but we were walking around a cemetery with our family and letting the kids ride bikes. It's actually a really good, safe place to walk and let your kids ride bikes and hang out. And the kids were riding their bikes. And, and Piper passed by a, a headstone that had Mickey Mouse on it. So that drew her attention. She was like, oh, look, it's Mickey. It's Mickey. And then she said, what, why is Mickey here? We said, well, baby, that's a... That's a grave. That's a headstone. And she starts to connect the dots. And she said, for a kid? I said, yeah, baby. And her eyes got so big. And she said, kids die too? Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Why would we avoid such a topic? Because it makes us a little uncomfortable when we realize the volume that the Bible speaks of this. So we can face the fear of death now personally. 
But how do we deal with the death of our loved ones and the people who have gone before us? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, the interesting thing is the Apostle Paul answers this exact question. Here's the backstory. Paul and Timothy were preaching a revival in the Thessalonica area. And then they weren't able to stay because of a political uproar, so they had to leave. Well, they had a bunch of new Christians, early converts. And so they were teaching them the gospel, and then they had to leave. Well, just like you, they had a bunch of questions. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul talked a lot about was the second coming of Jesus Christ. That, that, yes, this Jesus died and rose again, but Jesus is coming back again. Paul talked about it all the time. He's coming back again. He's coming back again. Well, here's what happened in Thessalonica. They knew that Jesus was coming back again, but then some loved ones and the people in the faith community started to die and pass away since Paul had came there and preached. And here was their question. If our loved ones have died and Jesus is coming back again, if they die before Jesus comes back, are they going to miss out on the second coming of Jesus Christ? So the Apostle Paul writes the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And he answers a series of questions. And in chapters 4 and 5, he answers this exact question. And here's what's so sad. The Apostle Paul writes these words for one reason. And he tells us, it's right there in verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 18, the verse says this, therefore, after everything he said, therefore, encourage one another. With these words. We've said this before. Do you know what the definition of encourage is? It means to put courage inside of. That if someone is lacking courage, dis is the prefix. If someone is discouraged, they don't have courage in them. And to encourage someone is to put courage inside of them. And do you know what Christians have done over the years? Um, They've taken these words about the second coming of Jesus. And here's the modern translation. Therefore, argue with one another on the signs of when Jesus comes back. It's so sad. The purpose of what was written was to encourage us in this life now. Which leads to this, the big idea for today. It's this. The hope that you have for the future provides encouragement in the present. That's it. Hey, listen, I, I don't have anything else. There is no magic pill. There is no secret advice to deal with the grief and the sorrow that washes over you. You can be standing in line at Walmart and watch something and just burst into tears. There is nothing else to deal with the grief of the passing of a loved one other than the hope that you know about the future. That is it. So, how do we deal with the death 
of our loved ones? And how does the second coming of Jesus, and like, where do we go when we die? And I've got all of this. Isn't it amazing that when you just take the Bible on its own terms, we can't make it say what it doesn't say. But when you submit yourself to it, then it starts to answer the questions that you have. So, how do we deal with the death of our loved ones? Well, the first one is this. We have to get the right information. We have to get the right information. It's the first thing the Apostle Paul says. Look in verse 13. Hopefully you have your Bible with you. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. I mean, there it is right there. But we do not want you to be uninformed. This phrase, we do not want you to be uninformed, the Apostle Paul in his writings has used it five times right up to this point in 1 Thessalonians. He loved this phrase in 1 Corinthians. But we do not want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters. But we do not want you to be uninformed, Timothy. But we do not want you to be uninformed about the resurrection of Jesus Paul makes a great point when he says your current circumstance and what you're dealing with and the reason why some of us struggle so much is because we lack the right information. Now, information isn't everything, but it is something, which tells me this. Oftentimes, you know, um, there's a ditch on either side of the road in the church, okay? So sometimes there's like the theological type. They're like, well, you ain't preaching the Bible unless you spent 17 years in the Gospel of John. Then you're really preaching. Yeah, you're boring, okay? I don't want to hang out with you, all right? And then there's the other ones who are like, oh, you know, we don't need anything. We just love. That's what we need. And you ask them to define love, and they're like, love. You know, they, like there's no, right, there's a ditch on either side of the road. It is crucial to have the right information, which tells me this. Um, what we believe about our future determines how we behave in the present. Right now, there are some things in Christianity that you have to know, that you have to open your Bible and you have to learn because what we believe affects how we behave. And if there is ever a testimony to the fact that the church is largely uninformed on the things that God has wrote about in his word. It is trying to watch an uninformed Christian comfort someone in grief. When you watch that happen, well, um, my father-in-law works at a funeral home. He's owned one. He's been a coroner for a number of years. And I had the privilege to work at a funeral home. It was kind of like my seminary, like getting to know these people. And I just shot him a text and I said, hey, man, what are some things that you have heard over the years with you being a believer and watching someone trying to comfort someone and they're uneducated? What are some things that you have heard? 
And then he sent me the list, and I just said, bro, you need to write a book, man. You need to write a book. You've heard some of these. Um, Here's some uneducated encouragement. You just need stronger faith. God will heal. It's your faith. You, You need stronger faith. How about the second one? I know how you feel. What you've just done is completely minimize the person that you're speaking to. And you know what? They could have lost a child and you could have lost a child. And yes, there are similarities, but you didn't lose their child. I know how you feel. How about this third one? God never gives you more than you can handle. Right? I might lay hands on somebody in the name of Jesus if I ever hear that again. <laughs> this is nowhere in the Bible. I know what you're saying. Well, well, in, 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 in Corinthians or something, it says something about God. It says God will not allow you to be tempted where there is no way out. And somehow, through the ages, it's become, God will never give you more than you can handle. Um, let's talk to the Apostle John about that. Who was boiled alive, beat with rocks? Um, How about Paul, who was crucified upside down, had his head cut off? That's nowhere in the Bible. Or um, let's just keep going with the list. Time will heal the pain. Time will heal the pain. Wrong. Um, Time, uh, if a wound goes unhealed, time will turn it into bitterness. And then bitterness gives way to unforgiveness. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, unforgiveness is demonic. Time does not heal all wounds. And then then here it is, by far the worst one. God needed another angel. Like, where's that at? Is that like in a wonderful life? What hallmark card did you read? That's nowhere in the scriptures. We don't turn into angels whenever we die. None none of that. Listen, here's why Paul is giving them right information. Because uneducated encouragement causes more pain. It causes more pain. Which in turn makes us have wrong expectations. I mean, expectations determine your experience. If someone's like, oh, you got to go to this restaurant, it's incredible. You're going in expecting to have a great night. And if someone's like, oh, don't ever go to that restaurant, by happenstance, if you happen to go, you've already got that experience mapped out. Listen, our expectations affect our experience. And here's what Paul's saying. Oftentimes, our frustrations are birthed out of our uneducated expectations. That's it. That's a word for some of you today. Some of you are struggling with, I should be over this by now. And I would look you in the eye and say, who told you that? By what standard? Do you know the trauma that you've experienced? By what standard should you be over that? Do you know what the Bible says on how to encourage someone who's weeping? 
It's great. It's one of the best verses. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says this. Weep with those who weep. That's it. It doesn't say, quote, Romans 8, 28, with those who weep. It doesn't say that. It just says, be in the pain with them. With them. Listen, we need some right information because that in turn affects our expectations, which leads us into the second thing. Paul says this, we are to grieve with expectations. Now, I want you to notice the word play. We need to slow down here. Look at what verse 13 says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. We just discussed that. Why is that so important? Because you need right information about those who are asleep. That's a biblical term for those who have passed away. I don't have all the details. I would love to speak with you. That does not mean soul sleep. That does not mean that when someone passes away, there is no more state of consciousness for that person. You say, would you have a Bible verse for that? Yes, I do. I'm glad you asked. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? On this day, today, you will be with me in paradise. That doesn't sound like sleep to me, bro. Paul would go on to say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Does not mean soul sleep. That you may not grieve. Now listen, if the verse ended there, it would be detrimental. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Oh my goodness. The Apostle Paul has just drawn a line in the sand. Number one, the Apostle Paul has said, Christians grieve too. Listen, guys, I am so far, I've put those years far behind me of just because we're Christians, it's good and it doesn't hurt and what, not, 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 and I'm good all the time. And well, how can I pray for you, brother? I'm concerned for you, right? No, 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 no. Where are the Christians who go, I love Jesus and I am drowning right now? You want to watch the Spirit of God work in your life? Start living in that authenticity. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 Christians grieve too, but there's a distinction. I think we need to define something here. Um, what, what is grief? We spent about four weeks um, this year in a series called Grief and Glory. You can go to our website. You can check that out to get into more detail. But this is how we define grief. Grief is our emotional and physical response to death. It's the way God has designed us. Do you know why? Because all through the scriptures, we see in the book of Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Um, when Jesus stood at the grave of Lazarus, you learned it. It was the first one that you learned to get that sugar-free cracker, right, in Sunday school. Jesus wept. Did you know that actually in the original translation, it's, it's, um, it means like the inward part of a person was moved. And the closer translation is that Jesus was angry. 
at death. Because Jesus looked at death and said, not supposed to be this way. But somewhere along the way, we have believed or said, and I would even say this, as our society goes further and further away, even from a concept of God, you will see that grief will be more and more unnecessary. Because why? Why would you grieve? We, nothing. This is, you know, life per se. Um, there is one theologian by the name of Peter Kreft, and he is, has more degrees than Fahrenheit's, and he does Christian counseling and all of this stuff. And he talks about how um, we've gotten so far away from a concept of grief that even Christians try to just do the, you know, it's natural. You know, just buck up. And how detrimental that is. He tells a story about a family that was in his church. And that family had a seven-year-old son. And the seven-year-old son had a four-year-old little cousin, and they were best friends. And the four-year-old cousin passed away from a tragic accident. And he tells the story about how the mom and dad were going to sit down and tell this seven-year-old boy about the death of his cousin. And they said, well, you know, death is natural. You remember Lion King, right? About how when we die, we go down and we give food to the grass and then the antelope eat the grass and then the tigers eat the antelope and it's this big circle. It's natural. And Peter Kraft said, as soon as they said it, tears started streaming down the little boy's face and he burst out right in the middle of while his dad was talking and said, I don't want my cousin to be worm food. And then Peter Kraft goes on to say this. The little boy was closer to Jesus's point of view than his parents were. He was grieving. Death is not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that God made the world. Death is the end of it. So grieve, cry. The Bible tells us not only to cry, but to cry with those who cry. Oh my, we have a lot of crying to do. Paul tells us to grieve. But then if you go back to the verse, he says, but not as those do who grieve and have no hope. There it is. Game changer. Everything's changed now. Lying in the sand. We've got a distinction. We've got what Christ followers do and we've got whatever else everybody else does. And the determining line in the sand is hope. It's everything that we live off of. And we've defined hope as this. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that what God has said will happen. That's what hope is. Paul even uses it in his argument. Look in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is not some feelings. This is not some advice. This is thus saith the Lord. And we as Christians, what we cling to is the hope of what God has said to us. And we say that will happen. That's what we hold on to in this 
world. And so, Paul gets into heavy detail in these next verses. And I'm going to paint a picture of what that hope is, but before we do, I need to answer some basic questions that you have that the Bible speaks to that we talked about last year. Um, The first one is this, just very simply, what happens after we die, okay? There's you, and then you die. Are there any questions so far? Um, You should use this, students, to your math teacher and say, I have found the perfect statistic. And they'll say, what? And you'll say, one out of every one human beings die. Because it's fact. Now, this is where the distinction happens is that your body is buried. This is a shell, right? And this shell is buried or whatever into the ground. And then your soul, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that immaterial part of you that longs for eternity and immortal aspects, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And what I mean by present with the Lord is for the believer, they go to paradise. I don't have time to get into this. You can go to the other sermons. This is not heaven as Revelation 21 talks about. That heaven is the final end of all mankind, earth, and time. This, you ready for this? You never hear preachers say this. This is going to be controversial. You ready? I have no idea what it is. It's like Lazarus' bosom. Uh, Jesus calls it paradise. Paul calls it the third heaven. Like what? Like we can have a cup of coffee about it. You don't know either, okay? Right? So that's where a believer goes. Here's what I do know. You ready for this? A good spot for an amen. It's with Jesus. Amen. It's just with Jesus. It's with Jesus. For a non-believer, it is also a temporary place that is not with Jesus, In Luke's gospel, it's called Hades. What I mean by temporary is it's not the lake of fire that your grandmother said where you go when you lie, okay? That, again, is the end. There is a in-between right now. And the next slide shows us what Paul is really talking about. Your body dies and you go into the ground. Ecclesiastes says this. Your spirit, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man goes to Hades, Lazarus, it's with Jesus, right? It's with Jesus, okay? Now, what's this leading to, though? Well, it's leading to the final judgment, and that final judgment is called the resurrection of the dead. This is what the text speaks to. Whenever that sky splits open... And the archangel gives the cry. By the way, if you're into rapture theology, this is not silent. There's like an angel blowing a trumpet. There's like the skies. That's not a secret rapture. So whenever you go home and no one's in the house, you're like, I missed the rapture. I missed it. I was left behind, man. That's not what's happening, okay? It's leading to the final judgment. Where Listen, every wrong is made right. Jesus judges the earth. Revelation says that he comes on a white horse and he's in a white robe and the bottom of his robe is dipped in blood and from his mouth comes a double-edged sword in which he judges the nations. Everyone gives an account. And then from there and the final judgment leads to the new heaven 
and the new earth. This is the hope that we have. And this is as real as the breath in your lungs. So what does this look like in greater uh, detail? Well, listen, here it is. A picture of the hope. We're going to run through these verses. The first thing is this. It's a promised hope. Jesus is coming back. Look in verse 14. That we believe that Jesus died and we believe, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, though Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to the Lord. Paul says, and oftentimes in our gospel, if you notice it, we don't focus on the whole gospel. We focus on this. Uh, God loves you so much. Jesus died. uh, Forgive you of your sins. Is there anything else? Did this guy that died, is that, was that death worthy? Did it do anything? That's half a gospel. The whole gospel is Jesus lived the life you could never live, died the death that you deserved in your place, was buried three days later, rose again, was alive for 50 days, and almost 100 plus people saw him, and then ascended into the heavens to sit at the right hand of the Father until the day that the Father turns to the Son and says it's time and then the archangel grabs the trumpet and sounds the sound that all creation has longed for and that sky will split open and Jesus is riding on the horse because he wins that's the gospel it's the whole gospel and this gets so much bigger now it's promised the second thing is this it's a powerful hope Look at what he says in verse 16. This is wild, man. This is so wild. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's it. That's the answer that Paul was writing to the Thessalonians. Are they going to miss it? I love Jesus, but I love them too, and I don't want them to miss it. What's going to happen? And Paul drops the line. He says, Jesus is coming back, and this is everything that's going to happen. And the dead in Christ rise first. Listen, they get it first. Their soul, don't even ask me how, okay? But you said that their soul's in paradise, and then you're saying that their body is going to, I don't know either, man, okay? But it's incredible is what it is. Somehow the soul that is with Jesus in a blink of an eye will be united again with that body. And from the dust you were created, from the dust you return, but from the dust you resurrect as well. Where do we get that hope from? Listen, that hope comes from the resurrection of Jesus. That's, we don't believe in liberal theology where it's like, well, we believe that he rose spiritually and generally the resurrection story is true in an ethereal term because, pfft, I don't, don't give me that, man. Did he physically rise or not? Why do you think he ate fish and chips with the disciples? Why is that in the Bible? It's to show the body. Why did he show the scars? Why? Because it is the body. Listen, this theology that paints a picture that God's just going to burn everything up and throw it in the garbage disposal is not biblical theology. 
The biblical theology is God making all things new, not all new things. And that's a profound distinction. That's why we steward what we have. This is a powerful hope. The second one is this. It's personal. It's personal. And oh, this got me. Look at verse 17b. I want you to notice something. Look at how many times he uses the word with. That's what jumped out to me this week. Verse 16, for the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry and command, with the voice of an angel, with the sound of the trumpet. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. With them. You didn't hear what I said. All those nights and all those moments where you could barely breathe. You're with them and you're with Jesus. It is such a personal hope. But the last thing is this, is that it's perfect In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You know, here's something that can be dangerous, guys. I'm just going to be honest with you. Would heaven or this moment, would heaven still be heaven to you if Jesus wasn't there? Here's what I mean. And listen, I love your granddaddy and I love your grandmama and I love those loved ones that have gone on. Our hope is in Christ. Yes, you'll see him. I just read it. You'll see him. And I'm going to hug and we're going to lay. It's going to be great. But I think I'm going to spend a lot more time at the throne. And listen, your hope has got to be in Christ. Not just in one day I'm going to be with them again. Yes, praise God. But it's got to move you to a love of Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul says this. We will always be with, with the Lord. That's how, that's it. That's how he ends it. Not with them, though we are. We are with the Lord. Listen, heaven is not a place for people scared of hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Christ. That's what it's about. It's to be with Jesus forever. So what's my advice right now? I know I got to have, I got pastor, I got to have a counseling session with you. After that sermon, I got some questions. I got to meet with you. I need you to tie this whole thing in a nice bow for me and deliver it to me so I won't go through any suffering, have any questions, or do anything. Pull one of those books. You got like 20 books over there. Can you just give me something? Right? Listen, here's my advice to everybody in the room. Hold on to this hope with everything that you have. That's my answer. That's it. It's every day. Every day, it's this hope. As the band comes and leads us in a time of response, um, I told you this on the second time around is a lot different um, than the first time around. And grief is a lot closer now. And so grief does weird things, man. Grief is not linear. It's not like, oh, this, oh, this, oh, there are some stages of it. 
clinically that any psychologist would tell you, but it's like cyclical. You can like jump from one and go to this one and go to that one and all kinds of stuff. When we were down for vacation last year, um, we got to take this little pontoon boat out in the Gulf of Mexico with some family, and it was incredible. And, and, and you go to this little dock and this pier, and there's all these businesses. But what there is is all the guys who love to fish. It's like gang time fishing. But it's not just that. Like what you fish and catch, they clean it right there, and then they pack it, and then you get to take it home. And all I could think about was that's a smelly car ride home, bro. You know what I mean? But when I saw them packing the fish, the ice looked different. It, it just wasn't like uh, the good Sonic ice. Sonic has the best ice, doesn't it, right? It, it wasn't just that. It, there was something else. And so I asked my Uncle Don, I said, what is that? And he said, well, that's salt and ice. And I was like, oh, well, duh. Right? Like human beings for the longest time to preserve meat and stuff, you know, we would pack it in salt. Listen, the wound that you have of grief and the pain that you're going through, the difference maker is one word that Paul said, and it's hope. Here's what I'm trying to say. We have to pack our grief with the salt of hope. We just got to keep packing it every day. And then notice Paul says, encourage one another. Not let the pastor encourage, or let the elders encourage one another. What is our job? To weep with those who weep. But listen, the hope we have for the future gives us encouragement now in the present. Jesus, we come before you right now so grateful for your good news and your kingdom. God, I just, I sense today just a sweet spirit in the room. God, there's a tenderness. It's like you've, imagine this, it's like you've gone before us in the week. You knew what was going on with every individual. And then you, you brought us all together and it was like, watch this. God, I'm so thankful for your sovereignty and your goodness. And God, if we are honest, we have a wound of grief. For somebody today, the word is, you have permission to grieve. The Bible does not prohibit it. It gives you permission to do it. That's a word for somebody today. For somebody else, it's right expectations. It's to get the right information in order to grieve with hope. And God, every human being in this room needs our cup of hope filled again. Every day. So Holy Spirit, the wounds that are in this room, just like they were in Thessalonica, would you pack those wounds with the salt of grief and hope? Pack it with hope and let us hang on to these verses with everything that we have. We ask this in the mighty and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.